Take a Bible this morning and find Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. This morning our passage is going to be verse 1 all the way to 23. This morning you have to listen to my voice with the, with the crud. And I'll just tell you, I sound a lot better today than I did yesterday. And I learned something yesterday. I couldn't really hardly talk at all yesterday, which I was kind of nervous because I'm coaching two girls' basketball teams for my two big girls. And I thought, there's no way that we can win if I can't yell at them. (laughs) And somehow we won both games. I didn't hardly say a thing, and somehow they did it. So we got lucky. Luke 22. Men, I want you to play it cool in what I'm about to tell you. Okay? Take a breath, play it cool. Today is Valentine's Day. And if that is news for you, then I have some good news for you and some bad news. The bad news is, my guess is if you go to Albertsons or HEB or Walmart as soon as church is over, they've already destroyed Valentine's and set up for Easter. That's the bad news. <laughs> and your wife does not want a chocolate bunny for Valentine's Day. The good news is you don't even have to go back and check that seasonal aisle. You just need to go to the clearance bucket right up at the front. And they're going to have the nasty stuff, but it's going to be Valentine's Day. And so you can go to the clearance bucket and uh, pick something up. But you better hurry, because the guy next to you might beat you there. (laughs) Valentine's Day started as the Feast of St. Valentine. And there's a a Catholic painting. There's St. Valentinus down there on the bottom, and he's receiving a rosary from the Virgin Mary. Uh, Obviously, we wouldn't agree with the theology implicit in that painting, but you get the idea. St. Valentinus, and he had a feast day. And for a long time, it was just like any other feast day for any other saint in the Catholic Church. But in about the 1700s, a poet named Chaucer started to write about this feast day and in his writings began to associate it with the idea of romantic love. And since Chaucer to the present, you can either say we've come a long way or it's been all downhill since then, however you want to look at it. Here's what I do know about Valentine's Day. The estimate for this year for spending on Valentine's Day is 19 billion with a B. And uh, like I said, some of you are going to contribute to that out of the clearance bin here in about 30 minutes. 19 billion dollars. That's a lot of money. A lot of money. And you know as well as I do from listening to songs, watching television, going to movies, that we live in a society that really is, even though I joke about it, really is very confused about love and what love is. And certainly the Bible has some important things to say about what love between a husband and a wife ought to look like. But let me just back up and let's talk about even more foundationally what love is. Here's some scriptures I just want to share with you before we jump in. 1 John 4.10, this is love. It's not that we loved God, but it's that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means that he came and he took the wrath of God that should have fallen on us. 
That's how God showed his love for us, and that's the definition of love. It didn't start with us towards God. It started with God towards his people. Next verse, Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Those two verses fit pretty well with Luke 19.10. Luke 19.10 doesn't explicitly have the word love in it, but it certainly communicates what we've read in those other two verses. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We've talked about that verse every week in the Gospel of Luke. That's the big idea that governs everything that we read in this book. And that's certainly true this morning. It fits perfectly with the verses that we're about to look at. More narrowly, though, let me give you the big idea of Luke 22, 1 to 23. It's really simple. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover celebration. We're about to read about Jesus and his disciples and the role that Judas plays in how this all unfolds. And we're going to read about this last Passover that Jesus celebrates with his disciples. And the point in all of it is Jesus changes the celebration. As he changes this hundreds of year old ceremony. Just changes it apparently just instantly. Is that it never really was about the Passover to begin with. It was always about Jesus. And so Jesus is the fulfillment. Look at Luke 22. And let's begin in verse 1. We'll read to verse 23. Scripture says this. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve, He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad. And they agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. Tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me. 
betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. They begin to question one another. Which of them it could be who was going to do this? Let's pray. Father, we ask for wisdom this morning. We begin to feel the weight of the seriousness of the last few days of Jesus' life on earth. We begin to feel the tenseness in the storyline. We begin to sense the magnitude of what's about to take place. And in a real sense, we feel like we're approaching holy ground and we just pray for humility to see ourselves as we truly are and to see you as the great God that you are. As we look at this familiar story, before we take a a familiar meal, we just ask that you would help us to see it clearly, maybe for the first time today. Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The story is familiar, and uh, we're just going to walk through it this morning. And there's just two questions as I looked at this story, two, two questions that popped into my mind. And I'm going to ask them, and we're going to try our best to answer them according to what we see in the text. And then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning. So look at verse 1, Luke 22, 1. Luke talks about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and he talks about the Passover. And he makes a distinction between the two, but then he also sort of says that the feast is called the Passover. Technically, these are two different Old Testament celebrations. And on the 15th of Nisan, they celebrate the Passover. And this is the the celebration to remember that God passed over the firstborn of Israel on the night that he killed the firstborn of Egypt. So they do that on the 15th of Nisan. The week that follows that is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a celebration or is a feast, a week-long feast, remembering that God brought his people out of Egypt. So obviously these two things are are very closely connected. And in Jesus' day, in Luke's day as he's writing this, the Jews just sort of talked about the whole thing as the Passover. So there is a distinction, but they're very closely related. And Luke says that at the Passover, this is verse 2, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking not to put him to death. They've already made that decision. They are going to put Jesus to death. What they're seeking at this point is, how are we going to do it? And Luke specifically makes the point to say to us that they feared the people. This is where Judas comes in as the great arch-villain of the story. They feared the people. You can go back and you can read ancient sources that talk about how many Passover lambs would be slaughtered in Jerusalem for a Passover celebration. All of these pilgrims coming to Jerusalem and all of these lambs being slaughtered. And you can sort of make a pretty rough guesstimate saying how many people would eat a lamb together. Multiply that by the number of lambs that we know that were killed. And by some ancient sources, we get the number of there may have been close to 3 million people in Jerusalem to celebrate a Passover. Well over a million easy. 
just tons and tons of people to a city that was not normally nearly that big. All of these pilgrims crammed into the city from all over the area, all over the region, and they're there to celebrate the Passover. And one thing we know from the Gospels as we read through the story up to this point is that the crowd's pretty much like Jesus. Okay? There's times, for example, in the Gospel of John that the crowds come to Jesus and he says some things that are very hard for them to understand and they say, that's it, we can't take it, we're done with you. But for the most part, they like Jesus and they like him for two reasons. They like him, number one, because he can perform amazing miracles. If you get in trouble and you need a miracle, they know who to go to at this point in time. They also like Jesus because he is constantly exposing the religious leaders and the religious establishment in Jerusalem. He's exposing their hypocrisy, they're being two-faced, they're being disingenuous. All of these things Jesus is putting on display for the people. And so for the most part, they like him. And the dilemma that the, the scribes and the religious leaders have is this. We want him dead, and we want him dead now. Think about some of the things that have happened in the last week. All of these millions of pilgrims in Jerusalem, Jesus walks into the temple, throws everybody out, flips the money tables over, and calls everybody snakes. They're mad. They come and they try to trap Jesus with trick theological questions, and every time he turns the tables upside down, metaphorically this time, and makes them look foolish, they're embarrassed. And they're just about to explode. They want him dead immediately. But they know millions of people in town, this is the biggest holiday of the year. We don't want to ruin it for all these pilgrims. We don't want to cause some sort of riot if we do something that they don't like. But we want this guy dead. And here comes Judas into the equation. And Luke tells us that Judas is looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus in the absence of a crowd. You look at the story at this point in the Gospel of Luke, we haven't read a whole lot about Judas, and you just ask this question, why did he decide to betray Jesus? You'd be amazed at the speculation if you just Google that question. I mean, some really ridiculous answers. Why did he do it? Everything from he was trying to force Jesus' hand to, to, to bring Jesus out as some sort of Messiah king to Judas is actually the hero of the story, depending on some sources you look at. Why did he do it? Biblically, we only have two thoughts. We can speculate all day long. You can try to put pieces together biblically. These are the only two things that we can go with. Number one, the Bible tells us that Judas worshipped money. I'll be honest, it doesn't say that word for word, but that's the picture that's painted. And so you can look here in this passage at Luke 22, 5. It says that they paid Judas to betray Jesus. You can look at Matthew 26, 15 that says what they paid him was 30 pieces of silver. Not insignificant, but really not all that significant either. When I think about Judas getting these 30 pieces of silver, I, used to, I think about when I used to work at a, a credit union and I was a teller. And they would let us keep so many thousands of dollars in your, your drawer at a time. And every now and then, newly married, had no money at home, I would look at that drawer and think, I got more money in my drawer than I have in the bank. I got more money in this drawer than I could make in a year. And you just start to daydream. How far would that money take me? The honest truth, not far enough. Not very far. 
That's kind of what you're talking about with Judas here. I mean, it's not just peanuts, but really, what are you going to do with it, Judas? It's not going to get you that far. But it was enough because he loved money. And we know that he loved money because John 12, 5 to 6 tells us that he was the treasurer of the disciples. He kept the money bag. And we know that there was some ladies and some men who contributed to Jesus' ministry, who supported his ministry. There were some people of means who supported Jesus as he walked around and preached. I mean, those guys had to have money from somewhere. And Judas was in charge of that money, and John tells us in chapter 12 that he used to help himself to the money. He used to steal from Jesus right under his nose. He worshiped money. That was part of the motivation. But when you read it in the Gospels, there's more to it than just Judas loving money. Here's the second thing that the Bible tells us. Judas was used by Satan. Luke 22.3 is kind of a frightening verse. Not kind of, it is a frightening verse. It says, Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He was one of the 12 people closest to Jesus when he walked on the earth. And Luke just sort of drops that bombshell and says, Satan entered into him. He entered into him. One thing that's worth pointing out is that when you read about Satan entering into Judas, it's not like a lot of the demoniacs we read about in the the Gospels, right? Right? I mean, you know the stories where Jesus is encountering these people who are, to use the literal Greek word, demonized. Not so much demon-possessed, but the Greek talks about being demonized. These demonized individuals. And you think about the guy at the, at the cemetery, right? He's running around naked and he's breaking chains off and he's cutting his body. Think about the guy who was in the synagogue when Jesus was preaching and he just starts screaming out, we know who you are, we know who you are. You're the one that's come to destroy us. You just think of these uncontrollable outbursts. That's not what we're talking about with Judas, right? It's not like that. He's not at the dinner and then he rips his clothes off and breaks a chain and cuts his body and says, I'm going to betray you. It's way different than that. This is the kind of thing you read about in 1 Peter 5.8 where Peter says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking people to devour, to destroy. It's the kind of thing you read about in Acts 5 where you read about a couple who is coming to church giving money from a piece of land that they just sold. But he enters their heart and they lie about it. They tell everybody they gave all of it when really they only gave part of it. And they die right there in church. First the husband, then the wife. And the explanation is that Satan filled their heart to lie to God and to lie to man. It's the kind of thing you read about in Ephesians 4, 26 to 27 where Paul says to the church in Ephesus, you need to be careful about the issue of anger. Because if you let that fester in your heart, you are giving a foothold to the devil. Being a bitter person and holding a grudge gives Satan himself a foothold, a toe in the door in your life. And Luke tells us here that Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. 
This is a man that gave himself over to the love of money for so long. And he was consistently unremorseful and unrepentant. And unwittingly, unknowingly, without any plan to end up being possessed by Satan. That was not on his radar. He opens up his life and the end result is that Satan enters into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. So listen, forget the latest Hollywood movie that's going to come out maybe this next Halloween or sometime this year and that's going to talk about possession and heads are going to be spinning and vomiting and crazy things and spooky things. Okay, put the Hollywood mumbo jumbo out of your brain. And I'm even telling you to take the stuff that you read in the Gospels and to set it aside just for a minute, okay? The stuff about guys running around naked at the cemetery, tearing chains off, screaming out in Jesus uncontrollably, throwing children down into fires. I'm asking you to take that aside. I'm not saying that that stuff's impossible. I'm saying history has shown us that it's not as common today as it was when Jesus was on the earth. When Jesus is walking the earth, the forces of evil know who he is. They're the only ones in the Gospels who do know who he is. The apostles are clueless, and the demons are saying, we know exactly who you are. You're the Holy One of God. You're the Son of God that's going to destroy us. We know who you are. And it's an all-out, final blitz, last-ditch effort to assault Jesus in his mission. Is a unique thing in the Gospels. So set aside Hollywood, set aside these wild demonization stories, and just let this rest on you. In your life, if you unrepentantly give yourself over to a sin, be it the love of money, be it bitterness, be it lust, be whatever sin you want to fill in the blank with, you run this danger. And for some reason, a scary guy running around naked breaking chains is more fascinating and frightening to us than what you just read about Judas. A man who looked very respectable and hung out with God-fearing people. And he thinks he has everybody fooled. And he gives himself over to this one sin long enough that a foothold becomes Satan entering into his life and he becomes a tool of the devil himself. Why did he do it? He worshiped money and he was used by Satan. So they're going to celebrate the Passover. Jesus sends Peter and John into the city and he gives them some interesting instructions. He says, I want you to look for a man carrying water. That really doesn't strike us as odd. If we had been Peter or John, what we probably would have said is, Jesus, women carry water. Men don't do that. Remember Jesus and the woman at the well, John chapter 4? The women are going out to get the water. That was the task of a woman in that culture. Men did not do it. And Jesus says, look, you go into the city. It's going to be evening. You find a man carrying water. I know that's unusual. I've set it up that way. You follow him into the house and you tell them, The master needs it, and it'll be ready. You get the Passover ready. And you read that little detail, and you say, why the secrecy? There's three million people in town. Why not just march into town and go celebrate the Passover? Why have to play like James Bond's secret agent, sneak around town? Listen, Jesus knew exactly what Judas was up to. 
He knew that Judas was looking for an opportunity to betray him in the absence of a crowd. And when Jesus was ready for that to happen, he's going to let it happen. But it's going to be on his timetable, not Judas's timetable. And so he says, look, you two guys, Peter, John, guys I can trust, the leader and my best friend, you go, you find the guy, you follow him in, you get it all set up. So they do that. And then I want you to look at verse 15. I've thought about this verse all week. Luke twenty two fifteen. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I've earnestly desired it. Jesus knows that when this meal is over, He's hours away from experiencing the worst thing that any person has ever experienced or will experience in the history of everything. Hours away. And he knows when it comes time to eat the meal and we get to this point in the storyline, it's coming. It's coming. And if I try to put myself in Jesus's shoes which is a dangerous thing to do sometimes and it comes time to eat this meal I'm looking around the table saying man I know I knew this day was coming I've been dreading this day all my life it's going to be the worst moment in the history of humanity that's going to come crashing down on me Jesus knows that he is about to be made sin for us. The one who has never said anything, done anything, or thought anything sinful knows within the day I become sin for you. And he knows, Galatians 3, I'm about to be made a curse. For those who are under the law. I'm going to be cursed for them. Cut off. And he knows. 1 John 4.10. This is love. Not that we love God. But that he loved us. And he sent his son to be what? The propitiation for our sins. He knows in a matter of moments. The full weight of God's anger towards sin. Is going to come crashing down on me. It's coming. And instead of saying, I've been living in fear of this my whole life. I've been wishing that this didn't have to happen. I've been trying to avoid this. I've been dreading this. He says to the guys sitting around the table, this is a great night. I have eagerly desired to eat this meal with you. And the question is, why? Why not dread it? Why earnestly desire it? And let me just give you four answers. And then we'll take the Lord's Supper. Answer one. The suffering of Jesus for sinners was God's plan from before the foundation of the world. Meaning, from before anything that exists even was spoken into existence, this was the plan. From before God opened up his mouth and said, let there be light, this was the plan. 
This has always been the plan. And it finally comes to the exact moment in space and time. And maybe the the guys who figured out Einstein's gravitational waves and all that stuff this week, maybe they can explain that to me. I don't get it. But in this exact space-time instance, Jesus says, this is the time. It's been the plan forever. Literally, forever. And now we're here. We're not going to flip to these passages. I just want you to think about them and look them up later. Matthew 25, 34 says that God prepared a kingdom for Jesus, and he prepared it before the foundation of the world. Not after he died on the cross, he started getting the kingdom ready. I've been preparing you a kingdom since before the world was founded. John 17, 24. The Father has given to the Son a group of people to save, and he gave those people to the Son, again, before the foundation of the world. This has been the plan for a long time. Ephesians 1.4, we talked about this verse Wednesday night as we looked through the book of Ephesians. It says that God chose us in Christ when? Before the foundation of the world. Same idea. 1 Peter 1.20 says that there was a plan of redemption and Jesus the Redeemer was known. Those two things, redemption and the Redeemer, known before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13 and 17 God has written the names of his people in the book of life and he wrote them before the foundation of the world. That's backwards to us. We read that and we say, no, 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 first Jesus has to die, then we get into the book. And he says, no, no, that's not how it works. This has been the plan for a long time. And it's all been leading up to this one moment, this one culminating event. All of history has looked up to it, and everything after it will look backwards to it. But this is the one moment that the plan from before the foundation of the world comes to fruition. And because that's true, Jesus looks at the disciples, and he doesn't say, I've been dreading this for the last 30 years or for the last 30 eons. He says, I have earnestly desired this moment right here. Why? Because this is the plan. It says it right in the text, right? Judas is taking care of what he needs to take care of. And verse 22 says what? The Son of Man is going as it has been determined. Is Judas a villain? He is. Is this somehow spinning outside of God's plan? Absolutely not. This has been the plan from before the foundation of the world. Reason two, why is Jesus eager to eat this meal? He came... To earth on a mission to seek and to save the lost by suffering for sinners. That's why he came. Right? We go backwards to the plan and we move up into the present. We say this was the reason he was here. He was on a mission to seek and to save the lost. Do you remember Luke 9.31? Probably don't. It's been a while. Luke 9.31 is the transfiguration of Jesus. Peter, James, and John go up the mountain and they see Jesus, his glory unveiled as it were. And two people show up and they talk to Jesus. Do you remember who it was? It was Moses and Elijah. And of all the gospel writers, Luke includes a detail that no one else tells us about. In Luke 9.31, he says, there's Jesus and all his glory and Moses here and Elijah here. He says, Jesus is talking to Moses. They're having a conversation during the transfiguration. And the conversation is about the exodus. But guess what? They're not talking about Egypt. Moses is talking to Jesus about Jesus' 
Exodus. Not talking about the book that comes after Genesis. Talking about what's about to come in a matter of months. And Moses is saying, look, man, the Exodus that I led out of Egypt was pretty sweet, but the one that you're about to lead is going to be amazing. It's going to happen when you leave this earth. You're going to lead your people out of sin and death, just like I led them out of Egypt. It's going to be fantastic. They are talking about that, and Peter, James, and John, and Elijah get to listen in on the conversation. And then just a few verses later, it's not a coincidence that these two things are so close in Luke. Just a few verses later, after Moses is there, essentially encouraging Jesus, Luke 9.51, Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. I'm going. That's why I came, to lead this exodus, to accomplish a mission, Luke 19.10, to seek and to save the lost. That's the very reason he came. And he's hours away, and he looks at his friends. He's not filled with dread. He's not filled with regret. But he says to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this meal with you. Reason number three. Why is he glad to eat this meal we gladly endured the suffering of the cross the bible says for the joy that was set before him this is a big one this is something i talk to you about a lot when we take the lord's supper because too many times we gather together to take the lord's supper and we turn it into i think i'm supposed to feel really bad that jesus had to do this for me like jesus He didn't want to do this, but he did it because there was no other way. And he's probably really cranky about it and has some hard feelings about it. And so while they're passing the stuff out, what I'm supposed to be doing is telling God how sorry I am that this had to happen. Should you be sorry for your sin? Yes. Should you feel sorry for Jesus? No. Because the Bible says in Hebrews 12 that he endured the cross and he scorned its shame and he sat down at the right hand of God. Why? Because there was joy set before him. Joy. No one twisted his arm. No one forced his hand. Nobody backed him into a corner. He did what he did for the joy that was set before him. What's the joy? Saving his people. Being with his people. Removing the one thing that stands between him and his people fulfilling the plan that had been the plan from the foundation of the world. That was the joy before him. Accomplishing the mission that brought him to the earth. That was the joy that was before him. So he gladly endured the cross and all of its suffering and all of its shame, Hebrews says, because there was joy in front of him. One last reason. Why is he glad to eat it? He knows, he knows, not he thinks, he knows that there will be a day when he celebrates this meal with his people in the kingdom. Luke twenty two sixteen in our passage, he says, I'm not going to have this meal again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. It's not that he says, this is the only time I'm going to do this with you. He says, I'm not going to do it again until the kingdom comes. A day's coming where we're going to do this again. And you can look up later what you read in Luke 12, 37. It's a pretty amazing verse, and it's a pretty cool verse. It says that when we have this meal in the kingdom, I'm not going to be serving. Neither are our elders or our deacons. Luke 12, 37 says Jesus is going to serve it. 
He's going to wrap a towel around his waist and he is going to serve his people a meal in the kingdom. And you get to the book of Revelation 19. When the kingdom comes and the king comes and the first thing that happens out of the gate after people are done worshiping is the marriage supper of the lamb. A meal, a celebration, just like we're talking about right here. I'm going to take the Lord's Supper this morning. In just a minute, I'm going to have our guys go to the back and the the band come up front. Here's what I want you to understand. When we take the Lord's Supper, it really has zero to do with how worthy you are. Okay, there's a passage in the Bible that says before you take the bread and the cup, you should examine yourself, look at your life. You need to do that. You need to take a few minutes not to examine, have I been good enough to take what they're about to pass out to me. What you're examining is, do I acknowledge my sin as sin and do I trust in Jesus as my Savior, yes or no? Because I can just answer the first question for you. If we're evaluating on terms of worthiness, we can just move on to the next part of the service. You're not worthy and I'm not worthy. You never will be. That's why the Son of Man came to seek you and to save you. And so when we take this supper, when we take of the bread, we take of the cup, We eat this old meal that started out as a Passover celebration and then Jesus changed it and made it all about himself. Here's what we're remembering when we take the bread and we take the cup. We're here today worshiping Jesus because God had a plan to save people and he had that plan from before the foundation of the world. And he sent the Son of Man to seek us and to save us By dying on the cross as the propitiation for our sins. That was his mission. And he knows that a day is coming when we're going to eat this meal with him in his kingdom. And Paul tells the Corinthians, look, here's how you take the Lord's Supper. And you do it this way until Jesus comes back. Until he comes in his kingdom. And so this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus... You've come to the point in your life where you've confessed your sin as sin. You've trusted in Jesus and who he is and what he's done for you on the cross. You've obeyed his command to be baptized. You're a follower of Christ. We'd love for you to participate this morning. We'd love for you to celebrate with us and remember who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So you bow your heads and I'm going to pray. And as I pray, the band can come up. And our deacons and our elders can make their way to the back of the room. Father, what an amazing passage. Guard our our hearts as we know that we're prone to chase so many foolish, unsatisfying, idolatrous sins. And remind us of the spiritual influences that we open ourselves up to when we unrepentantly give ourselves over to sin. So, Father, we see the warning in this passage, but we also see the hope, and we celebrate the hope. What an amazing statement that Jesus earnestly desired to eat this meal with his friends. And that today we look back and we remember the life of Jesus, 
the death of Jesus, the hope that it brings us. Father, we just begin before we put anything into our mouth and we admit and acknowledge and confess that we are unworthy. We are sinful people in our deeds, in our words, in our hearts. And we don't come and sing songs and listen to sermons and take communion because we're good. We, we do it because you are gracious and you're faithful and you had a plan and Jesus accomplished his mission and we have hope of eternity, of celebrating with you in eternity because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We sang earlier that our hope is built only on Jesus and his righteousness. It is not built on ours. And so as we take the cup and as we take the bread, we are reminded that his body was broken for us, that his blood was poured out to ransom us, and we are grateful, and we are thankful, and we worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs)